My intention last week had been to preach from the Psalms so that we could start the year off with a, a focus on something encouraging from the Psalms. And since I wasn't here last week, I'm going to do it this week for you. The new year. It is still new. It's only the second Sunday of the year. It is still a new year. We're still getting back into the post-holiday routine. And the new year for most everybody is welcomed, is it not? Welcomed as a new day, a new opportunity, a new beginning. The past is behind us. There is bright hope for the future, or at least we would like to think so. And so we make New Year's resolutions. We might still be in that window of time where you are keeping those New Year's resolutions, although we might be getting close to the line. But as I see it, the new year is a great new opportunity, not so much for us to make new fitness goals, not for us to hope that 2022 is better politically and socially than the last two years, because rest assured, it probably won't be. We know that. But it is a great opportunity. It is a milestone. It is a checkpoint, if you will, by God's grace for our lives to look back and remember God's faithfulness to us. His faithfulness to us through many dangers, toils, and snares. And it is an opportunity for us to look ahead, not to an easier world or a more pleasant world like we might want to, but to look ahead with confidence and expectation, Christian hope, that God's amazing grace, which has led us safe thus far, will lead us safely home. And has it crossed your mind yet during this New Year's season that safely home could be what we experience this year? As we embark on our journey through 2022, it is time to turn our hearts and our minds to our sovereign and faithful God, to renew our hope in Him, and to resolve to worship Him and to walk in His ways. And so I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 100. The 100th Psalm. And I want us this morning to spend our time in the Word remembering who God is and what He does. And to give praise to Him and thanksgiving to Him. Giving thanks is a lost art, isn't it? It's one of the marks of a generation that has rejected God, by the way. We read about it. But we're not thankful. It is a neglected practice, a neglected attitude in most of our lives, at least at some point, and definitely in our world. But a thankful spirit is a critical attitude for a healthy and stable Christian life. In fact, one of the best things you can do when you're in a time of despair is to stop and reflect on what you can be thankful for. Right? Giving thanks to God is a natural reminder that He is great and that He is good, even when He is leading us through trying times. Giving thanks to God is a reminder that we are not the center of the universe and that even our own life story is not ultimately about us, but about Him and His plan. Giving thanks to God helps us to remember that there is a much bigger picture to the events of our lives than what we might naturally see from day to day. There is more going on. And for the Christian... Praise and thanksgiving to God are not merely an activity that we do, but they are a disposition of our hearts. 
Not just that we give thanks, but that we are thankful. And that disposition of heart is rooted in an understanding of the character of God himself. We belong to him. He is our creator, our savior, and our provider. So it is no accident that Psalm 100 is one of the most famous psalms. One of the most beloved psalms. And I think it is appropriately one of the most well-known and loved passages in Scripture. Psalm 100 is a concentrated summary of all the psalms put together. It is a call to worship. It is a call to give praise and thanksgiving to God alone. And it not only calls us to worship, but it tells us how and why. Don't you love that about God? He doesn't just call us to figure it out on our own or do it in our own way. He says, you as a sinner cannot approach a holy God, but I'm commanding you to approach and I'm providing the way and I'm telling you exactly how to do it. God hasn't left us on our own. He has revealed his ways to us. And Psalm 100 calls us to worship and tells us how and why. Psalm 100 challenges and corrects our selfish notions of worship. And it teaches us a better way. It teaches us the right way. It reminds us that our world and our lives and our worship are not ultimately about us. They are all about God. And so this psalm teaches us that our thanksgiving and our praise and our happiness are bound to no one and to nothing except God alone. Christians, we need to get that truth. Everything else is temporary. Everything else fades. Everything else will fail and disappoint. But God does not let his people go. God does not disappoint his people. God does not fail his people. And so it is significant that in this psalm of praise and thanksgiving and worship, there is no mention of material benefits. Because our worship of God doesn't depend on those things. That is not what makes up our gratitude to the Lord, ultimately. Our happiness, our worship are not dependent on material benefits or anything else that we might seek in this world. Our foundation for worship and praise and thanksgiving are all centered on God alone. And that's the idea this morning. Who is he? What does he do? What is he like? And so for the Christian, our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving are not sentimental feeling-oriented, experience-driven, or earthly-bound. But instead, they are all driven by the character and the activity of God alone, the truth about God, what He has revealed. You see, ultimately, we worship God because He is God. We worship God because He is good, but He is the very definition of good. We worship God because He's God. That's what the creation is to do. All things come from Him. And when that is the focus of our worship, then we are able to rejoice and give thanks and praise Him and even live a stable, godly life even when things are not going well. When we're suffering, when we're struggling, when we're frustrated, when we're grieving. In life and in death, in good times and in bad. Our praise and our thanksgiving are not about where we are or what we have, but all about who we know. The Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We can know Him. That is the heart of Christian joy and worship, and that is my prayer, that this year all of us would grow more deeply 
in our love, in our praise, in our thanksgiving to the Lord for who He is and what He's like. Psalm 100 then calls us to worship God in praise and thanksgiving with that very mindset. It teaches us who we are to worship, and it teaches us how to worship, and it tells us why. So let's look at Psalm 100 now. It's a wonderful psalm. Most of you would have expected it at Thanksgiving. I think it's appropriate to preach for the new year. The psalmist says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Don't underestimate the significance of Scripture inviting us to come into the presence of Yahweh. Who would dare to do that? Right? Here we're invited. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. I think most of you see the title that's given to that psalm right there in your text, A Psalm for Giving Thanks. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? That's what it is. It is a call to praise and thanksgiving, And the basis of that call is God's works and God's character, what he does and who he is. And that's how we'll look at the text this morning. So I want us to consider, first of all, the call to give praise and thanks to God. The call to give praise and thanks to God. We see that in verses 1 and 2. It is a divine call to worship, a scriptural call to worship. And notice the focus of it all. The focus of this call, verse 1, we are told, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 2, serve the Lord and come into His presence. And verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. Is there any question what the focus of worship is? Is there any question where our attention is to be as we give praise and thanksgiving, it is God and God alone, and not just any God. This is Yahweh. When you see LORD in all capitals in your English text, that is telling us that is the Hebrew name Yahweh, the covenant name of God that He has given His people to use. He is the one true God, the LORD of heaven and earth. You see, this This is not some general call to spirituality. I've talked about that before in relation to my experience in the Air Force as a chaplain, right? They like to talk about spirituality as if it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something that makes you feel better. Scripture has none of that. This is not some general undefined notion of faith or good feeling. It is not a general invitation to worship some God, just get out there somewhere, or whatever kind of God we might imagine for ourselves. Contrary to what the world teaches, it does matter who you worship. And there is only one viable option. There is only one true God. Every other notion of faith and every other God is a false God. Psalm 100 calls us to worship the true God, Yahweh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. Now, I know that sounds obvious to a group like this, but consider how often and in how many ways we tend to fall into self-centered worship. Consider that, even as Christians. Yes, we may claim the name of God in our worship, but often we may tend to measure the value 
or the success or the relevance of worship by how it makes us feel. Or whether or not it meets one of our felt needs. Is that not true? Do we not live in an age of custom-made worship experiences? And in an age of these custom-made, demographically unique, strategically planned, tailor-made worship experiences, we may still paint the name of God above the door. But let's make no mistake, we're the focus of the worship. Psalm 100 is calling us to a better way. And at the very outset, it is laying the foundation for our worship that it is to be focused on Yahweh himself, God the Father himself, through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, empowered by their Holy Spirit. And it may sound obvious, but it is absolutely essential. Any worship that is not focused on God, first, foremost, and above all, is not worship of the one true God. It is, in fact, idolatry. Worship is not ultimately about us. It's about Him. He is the object of our worship. He is the focus of our worship. He is the motivation for our worship. He is the reason for our worship. And He is the director of our worship. You may be familiar with Romans 11.36, where the Apostle Paul breaks out into this doxology after 11 chapters of laying the groundwork for who God is, what he's done through Christ. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. It is all about him, and it is all for him alone. And so it matters how we approach Him. It matters how we prepare ourselves for worship. It matters how involved we are in the gathering of His saints. It matters how and what we preach. It matters how and what we sing. It matters how we pray and how we talk to one another. And the list could go on. It matters. It is not to be flippant. In all of this, God and God alone is the absolute authority and the absolute and total focus of our praise and thanksgiving. That is the focus. But next, I want us to notice the extent of this praise and thanksgiving. The extent of the praise and thanksgiving. Who is this call to? And how far is it to go? That's an important question. And the two key ideas here are all the earth and all of life. Verse 1 tells us to whom this call is made. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the earth. There is no limit. There is no exclusion to this call. It is a call for every nation. It is a call for every people group. It is a call for every person, in every generation, in every location, throughout the world. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, whoever calls, all who calls, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is an invitation for all the earth to come to the Lord God Almighty through Jesus Christ alone. To know Him and to worship Him. What an invitation that you, that I, could know and draw near to the Holy God. And that is exactly what it is. Friends, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord today? I don't mean do you know of Him. Do you know Him? Do you know God? Have you come? to a point of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and submission to Him. If you are not a Christian, then you are not a worshiper of the one true God. And if you are not a worshiper of the one true God, then you are a worshiper of something else. And whatever it is, it is less 
It is faulty. It is incomplete. It is broken. Whatever else might consume your life cannot bring you ultimate joy. It cannot ultimately satisfy you. And it is not worthy of your devotion. I know it may please you for a while. I know it may make you feel secure for a little while. But what happens when it fades? What's next? And that's the question that many, many people must wrestle with. What next? And that's why we live in a world that has the oh no mentality. Anytime something comes up, we shrink back in fear. Oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no, oh no. Oh no. And Christians don't do that. At least we don't need to. Because whatever is next, our hope and our joy are in the Lord God Almighty. That's where it needs to be. And if you're not a Christian, I urge you today to find your hope in Him. There is eternal joy in worshiping the one true God. And you have been invited into that eternal joy through Jesus Christ. Without Him, you're separated from God in your sin. and You will bear its punishment on your own forever. But in Christ, you can receive grace and mercy and you can be reconciled to God. I urge you, look to Christ. Join us in worshiping Him as your Savior and your Lord. This is a call to all people to worship the Lord. Now, in verse 2, it tells us how far uh, this call extends into our lives. What do you mean when you say worship the Lord? How far does that go? It is a call to all the earth, and it extends to all of life. We're told in verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Here we are in the context of worship and praise and thanksgiving, but then we see the word serve. Did the psalmist forget what he was talking about? Did he just hop up on a soapbox that he wants to preach his pet issue? No. Worship and service are completely inseparable for the Christian. Serve the Lord with gladness. God, again, He's the object of our service. That word serve has the idea of ownership or the work of a bond slave. Right? Verse 3 will point out, we belong to God. That takes the idea of worship and it applies it to the everyday, minute, motions, activities of our lives. Every bit of it is for His service. That means that worship is not just an activity that we do within these walls on Sunday mornings. And it's not just the singing of good songs. It bugs me to no end when groups want to do worship, like a night of worship. And what they mean is a service without the preaching. And we want the music, we want the music. That's, that's a vital aspect of worship, but that's not the, the whole picture. Right? Worship is an identity. It is a lifestyle. And it directs every part of our life, and it plays out in our daily lives in the form of godly service. Christian service. Service and worship are inseparable. Apostle Paul, right after that great doxology in chapter 11, Romans 11, verse 31, he writes this, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, one who knows God, one who worships God as He has commanded, has laid His life down. He has laid His body down at the Lord's feet. And He has yielded to get up. He has resolved to go wherever He sends and to do whatever He commands. 
see, though we are not saved by the law, it matters how we live. We are called to walk in newness of life, are we not? We are bondservants. We are slaves of the Lord. But Christians, you understand that's not miserable service, is it? This is delightful service. It is joyful service. The world doesn't get that because to the world, anything short of complete independence from all authority is bondage. It's been that way since Genesis 3. That's been at the heart of man's sin ever since the beginning. But Christians understand that because of sin, even complete independence and autonomy is bondage because we are slaves to sin. But in the Lord, in the Lord, in our submission to the Lord, we find the path of life. In His presence, there is fullness of joy. And at His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Christians, I hope you understand that. That a life of service and worship to God is that is actually the heart and the source of our Christian joy, of our delight. There is no greater joy than to know and to serve God. Christians, does that define your life? Does that describe how you live from one day to the next? Have you given yourself over to serving the Lord with gladness? And that brings us to our next consideration, which is the exuberance of our praise and thanksgiving. We've seen the focus. We've seen the extent. Now let's consider the exuberance. You say, wait a minute. Are we allowed to talk about that in church? Yes. In fact, we're supposed to. Verse 1 calls us to make a joyful noise. I enjoyed your singing this morning, by the way. It's a joyful noise. In a good way for most of you. But even if it doesn't sound good, if it's joyful, you're still fulfilling your responsibility, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Verse 2 calls us to serve the Lord with gladness and to come into His presence with singing. Those words speak of excitement and keen interest and, and eagerness and heartfelt involvement, wholehearted devotion. The joyful noise is, is here a, a victorious shout of loyalty and triumph. I don't care what defeats our world has seen throughout 2020 and 2021. We have a victory cry. And it continues on through this year, no matter what happens. We have good reason for that, don't we? Because the God we sing to, the God who has invited us to know Him and to worship Him is the sovereign King over all creation. He is an active God. He is at work in your life. And He is mighty. And in Him we have eternal, unshakable hope. And so our service and our worship are joyful. And our singing is glad. It stirs our souls. It is a proclamation of who God is and what He has done for us. I mean, you get the picture when you watch a sporting event, don't you? Fans have no problem standing on their feet, cheering on their team, celebrating when they score, and making sure the refs understand their place. No problem lifting our voices. Why are we so still when we're at church? I'm not saying that we ought to look like we're in a stadium. They're not the same thing, I understand. But have you become bored with your Christian life? Yeah, I know I'm a Christian because I'm supposed to be, because otherwise I can't go to heaven. But where I really find my joy is in you fill in the blank. Is that our attitude? My argument is, if that is true, it's not because God is boring. It's not because God's word isn't clear and sufficient. It's because that we don't know him like we ought to. And if that's you this morning, friend, don't despair. 
but let's turn around and start walking down the right way. Simply put, when we truly know God, when we worship Him, it is a joyous thing, and it is okay to find our joy there, and it is okay, Christian, to express it. It's okay to be excited. It's okay to be pleasant. It's okay to talk about the things of the Lord. You say, well, that's awkward. Only the first couple times because you're not used to it. Our worship is not a cold ritual or a dead religion. It is a joyful celebration because it is focused on God himself. And there is no greater focus. There is no one more worthy of our worship and praise. And when we know him and when we draw in and continue to get to know who he is like, who he is, what he's like, and what he's up to in the world, we can't help but fall down at his feet and yield our lives to him. That's the call to give praise and thanks to God. Now, that brings us to verses 3 through 5, where I want us to consider the reasons to give praise and thanksgiving to God. Not just the call, but now the reasons. Again, he doesn't just say do this. He gives us compelling reasons. He doesn't even just give us the reasons that parents give to their small children, because I'm God and I said so. No, he gives us compelling, wonderful reasons for why we can turn our eyes away from the pleasures of this world and worship our God with praise and thanksgiving. He's not just working up the crowd, getting us into a frenzy to feel like we're worshiping. No, he's anchoring this in truth and calling us to follow it with our lives. Why are we to worship him? First of all, because of his works. Second of all, because of his character. That's what we're going to look at, but I'm going to give you some clearer points after that. Verse 3 focuses on God's works as the basis for giving praise and thanksgiving to him. Now, when we think of God's works, we're going to be tempted to think uh, in terms of, well, God did this for me, and God did that for me, and God gave me this. And that's all well and good. But remember, our worship is not anchored in our earthly circumstances or possessions. Okay, so if that's the only thing that we're anchoring our praise in, then it's going to be up and down, right? Because sometimes you don't have, and sometimes things are hard. We tend to think only we, we tend to think God only gave us the stuff that's pleasant, right? But we forget He also gives us the stuff that's not, because He has the same purpose in it all. And it's a good purpose. And so verse 3 leads us to meditate on the gracious activity of God as God. With Him in view, not ourselves. And then we worship Him for that. Verse 3 says, know that the Lord, He is God. That's it. Right? Now, but He goes on. It is He who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. All right. True Christian worship is reality based, it is truth oriented. That is why it is joyful and triumphant. Your feelings change, my feelings change. And for any number of reasons, our circumstances change, our possessions change. Our mindset changes. And if we base our worship on that, then it's going to be unpredictable. It's going to be inconsistent. And when we need the truth of God the most in our darkest times, we won't find it. Because we're not ready for it. But when my worship is based on the truth of God, of who he is and what he has done. And when it is anchored there, then my joy is solid. And it is true even when my circumstances are bitter and my heart is cold. So verse 3 calls us to joyous praise and thanksgiving by pointing us to four categories of the works of God. Four categories of the works of God in verse 3. First, 
we read about his work as the sovereign God. Right? Verse 3 says, know that the Lord, he is God. You say, that's not a work. Well, hang on. Know that the Lord, that's Yahweh, he is Elohim. He is the almighty, the, the all-powerful, all-knowing, the ever-present and holy and righteous and just ruler of heaven and earth. So that's not just who he is. That's how he relates to the world. That's who this God is who's inviting us to worship and to put our confidence in Him. He is at every moment exercising His sovereign authority over all aspects of creation, including the timeline of your life. He is active. He never grows weary. He never loses interest. And He never makes a mistake. Name one human being you've ever known who can make that claim. Your greatest hero cannot make that claim. God can. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So what he is doing in our lives at this moment, and in our world at this moment, is for his good purposes, as it always has been. And we can trust him. Now, I don't know what tomorrow looks like. I don't need to know. I trust Him. And not only does He know, He's planned it. This is Yahweh. This is our God. There is no one like Him. Next, not only do we see His work as the sovereign God, but we also see His work as the Almighty Creator. Verse 3 goes on to say, It is He who made us, and we are His. Some translations say it is He who made us, and not we ourselves. The point is the same. We belong to Him. We are not self-made people. He is the Creator. He is the one who has intricately woven us together and planned our days from before the foundation of the world. There is not one misstep. In his plan. All creation was his idea and his work, and it all belongs to him. We exist by him and for him, Paul says in Colossians 1. And so, contrary to the ideals of this world, we are not self made people. I don't care how self made you are in this world, we're not self made people. We're not here. By chance. You may think, my life has no purpose. You are wrong. God has put you here for a reason. We are created by God to know Him, to glorify Him, to serve Him, to worship Him, and to enjoy Him forever. And to worship God demands that we acknowledge Him as our Creator. Because then we realize we belong to Him. And in whatever it is that comes our way, we can say, Lord, I'm yours, have your way. Now, not only do we see him in his work as the sovereign God and the almighty creator, but we also see his work as our gracious redeemer. I love this phrase. We are his people. There is a personal aspect to God's relationship with Christians. He didn't just build a corral and then stick us all in it. We're not just numbers. We're His people. We're His people. And I know that refers initially to Israel. Israel as the nation called out by God through whom the gospel would come to the nations and bless all nations. But through Christ, this refers also to all who have received that salvation that he has promised from the beginning. We're not only his by creation, we're his by redemption. He has purchased us. We are his people. We have been rescued out of sin and its eternal consequences. 
The Apostle Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, by his sacrifice alone, we have been born again. We have been adopted into the family of God. And that is great cause for exuberant praise and thanksgiving. And if all that were not enough, to see his work as the sovereign God and almighty creator and gracious redeemer, the text also highlights his work as the tender shepherd. The tender shepherd. We are the sheep of his pasture. The sheep of his pasture. Not only is God our creator and our redeemer, but he is our shepherd and sustainer. You want to know what that means? Here's your homework assignment for the day. Read Psalm 23 this afternoon, and you'll get a pretty good glimpse of what it means that he is our tender shepherd. He is our sovereign, almighty, gracious shepherd. He is the provider of all that we need. He is our protector against evil. He is the one who leads us all the way home where we will spend eternity in his presence with him forever. We are his sheep. He knows us all by name. He cares for us and he is leading us all the days of our lives until we dwell with him forever. So when we consider the works of our God, we have every reason to worship, don't we? Every reason to worship. In Him, we do not have to, to depend on the empty promises and false hopes of this world for joy. We have eternal hope. We have Him. And that is all we need. That brings us to verses 4 and 5 where we must consider now His character. This is the basis for his works. Verse 3 tells us to worship because of his works. Verses 4 and 5 root those works in who he is. He does what he does because he is who he is. So who is he? point is to point our attention to him alone, to ground our worship in him. And again, we worship him as God because he is God and this is what God is like. Verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. That last phrase, bless his name, is what I'm after there. In Scripture, a name is often meant to be a representation of someone's character and what they will accomplish in their life. Jesus was named Jesus not because that's just a popular name for the day. His name means Jehovah saves. The angel gave that name on purpose, right? To show what kind of person he would be. When Scripture talks about the name of God, it is pointing our attention to the character and attributes of God, who he is. And there are many names for God. You should do a study sometime on the names of God used in Scripture and what they mean. And each of them highlights a crucial aspect of His character in its perfection. So when we're called to bless His name, we are meant to recognize and to affirm and acknowledge and confess and proclaim the attributes of God, what is true about who He is and His character. And that becomes the basis for our praise. I praise you, Lord, not because primarily you have done something good for me in this particular circumstance, but because of who you are. You are the good one. You are perfect in all your ways. Now with that in mind, verse 5 highlights three attributes of perfection, three attributes of, of God's character and that, that are perfect in every way. And they lead us to respond in worship. The text says in verse 5, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. 
we see, first of all, his perfect goodness. Say the word perfect isn't in there. No, but you know what? The name Yahweh is. The name Yahweh was used back in verse 3 as the foundation. He is God, who is the Lord, who is perfect in all his ways. And again, here in verse 5, this God, this Yahweh, is good. He is perfect in his goodness. That word good in Scripture has many nuances. It can mean pleasant, or sweet, or beautiful, or useful, or sufficient, or moral, or right. So which one is it? It's all of them. This is Yahweh, and he is all of those things in perfection. In other words, he is good in every aspect, perfect in every aspect of his character. There is no deficiency in his goodness. In him we find perfect pleasantness, perfect righteousness, perfect benefit. He is, in fact, the very definition of good in every way. That's what we mean when we say God is good. And building on that, next we see not just his perfect goodness, but his steadfast love. His steadfast love endures forever. That is a phrase that is repeated often in Scripture, especially in the Psalms. It refers to God's loving kindness and mercy and his covenant loyalty to his people. You are never walking alone. His steadfast love is eternal and unending. He is a God of love even to those who do not deserve it. And what greater display of love could he give than to put his own son on the cross? But God shows his love for us. He puts his love on display. He fulfills it. He demonstrates it in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever been tempted to doubt the love of God? You don't have to answer that. I know you have. We all have. In those moments, what you need more than anything is to meditate on the steadfast love of God demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. And your heart will be lifted in grateful praise that there is no extent to which our Lord will not go to save and preserve his people his steadfast love endures forever. Forever, And then finally, the text tells us of his enduring faithfulness. His enduring faithfulness. His faithfulness endures to all generation. That God is faithful means he is reliable. He is trustworthy. He is unchanging. He is sure. It means his promises never fail. His plans are never incomplete. He is not a God who means well but can't follow through. He is a God who remains true to every plan, to every promise, and every good intention. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Remember that? And so this proclamation of God's faithfulness is not just for the psalmist back in Bible times. It's for us today. This God is faithful today just as he was then. There is never an age, there is never a circumstance in which God's faithfulness is not at work. You say, I don't feel it right now. I know. That's why our faith is not built on feelings. Because sometimes it doesn't feel right. But you know this God. You have seen him work in the past. He will not fail his people. And as much as society would like to say otherwise, there is no such thing as a post-Christian world. Or the death of Christianity. God is faithful. He will never forsake his people. 
Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You realize that's an offensive term. Gates don't move. This is the church on the offensive. It will advance. It will grow. It will conquer. Why? Because God himself has said so. Friends, don't lose heart in walking with the Lord today. His faithfulness endures to all generations. So, let the world do its worst. Are you prepared to say that today? Are you ready? I heard a preacher look at a room full of seminary men the other day, and he said, brothers, if things continue the way they are, every one of you will either apostatize or suffer. Are you prepared today to say, let the world do its worst? We have no reason to fear. In fact, we have every reason to rejoice and to live our lives in exuberant praise and thanksgiving. Why? Because we have some nice stuff and our lives are easy? No, some of you have lived difficult lives and you don't have a lot of stuff. That's not the basis of your hope. We live our lives in exuberant praise and thanksgiving and worship and devotion to the Lord because He is our sovereign God, because He is our almighty Creator and our gracious Redeemer and our tender Shepherd. And He is perfectly good and steadfastly loving and eternally faithful. That's why Martin Luther, in the shade of the plague, and all number of, of, of onslaughts and attacks against those who hate Scripture can say, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Why? Because this is the God whose kingdom it is. My prayer this year is that God would take our thankfulness and worship to a deeper level as we look to Him, who He is, what He has done for us, that we would not seek our security or our joy in our earthly circumstances, but that we would be people marked by God-centered, joyful praise and thanksgiving. And may God make that so in our lives. Let's pray.